Support for AHLA comes from PYA. For nearly 40 years, PYA has helped clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. PYA is recognized by Modern Healthcare as one of the nation's top 20 healthcare consulting firms and by Inside Public Accounting as a top 100 accounting firm. Learn more at PYAPC.com. Hello, listeners. My name is Katie Culver, a consulting senior manager with PYAPC, an accounting and consulting services firm headquartered out of Knoxville, Tennessee. Go Vols. I'm sorry. I just couldn't resist. Hopefully, we have some UT fans listening today, or at least not quite as many Alabama fans. So today I'm joined by two healthcare attorneys as well as a healthcare consultant who presented a very valuable topic at this year's AHLA annual meeting, which was of course virtual. We'll be diving into their presentation in just a little bit, but before we dive in, I'd love for the listeners to get to know Gina, William, and Anna a little bit more. Gina, can you kick us off with a brief introduction? And please tell me you're not an Alabama fan. (laughs) Uh, Notre Dame, so I don't know if that <laughs> where that puts me. Um, but hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Gina Gunville, and I'm a healthcare attorney with Postnelli PC based in Chicago. I work with clients nationally on a variety of transactional and regulatory matters and work with a lot of providers all along the care continuum, including hospitals, health systems, academic medical centers. ACOs, clinically integrated networks, as well as behavioral health care providers. Lately, I'm spending a lot of time advising clients on strategic partnerships and affiliations, provider alignment issues, and different kinds of cost savings initiatives. And I also serve as a member of the HLA Behavioral Health Task Force. Perfect. Thank you, Gina. William, how about you? Hey, my name is William Teague. I'm the director uh, with DMG Health based in our Nashville office. Um, I specialize in providing valuation, transaction advisory, and, you know, just general financial operational consulting services to our healthcare clients. Um, I'm a member of DMG's uh, Behavioral Health Affinity Group, and I have over 10 years experience working with all types of behavioral health providers on transactions, joint ventures, um, and just and just general planning. I'm excited to be here today, and I'm also a Tennessee fan, so so go Vols. There we go. So we're up one so far. <laughs> Anna, what about yourself? And good to talk to everybody, and uh, let me emphasize I'm from Kentucky, so we have very <laughs> little love for Tennessee, but um, I am a healthcare attorney focusing on rural behavioral health and substance abuse care. Um, I also do uh, some work with the state autism services providers. I do a lot of pro bono in autism because that's um, in our extended family. So that one is near and dear to my heart. I own Anna White's Law Office, which is in the middle of our teeny weeny state capital in Kentucky. Great location because in five minutes I can walk to the capital and engage with legislators or even if I'm lucky, the governor's office and uh, 10 minutes the other way, and I'm at the Cabinet for Health and Family Services and Department of Medicaid. So um, anytime something goes wrong, I can just jump into somebody's office and address it um, in real time. So that's a huge advantage, particularly dealing with uh, how quickly changes are occurring these days in telehealth and in behavioral uh, care. 
I represent clinics, rural hospitals, and a toxicology lab, so I can bore anyone on urine drug screening. Hit me up if you really want to get into the weeds there. But primarily, I am a huge telehealth nerd. I'm a member of the state's telehealth steering committee, which was just made a formal division of uh, state government. So we're looking for a director um, and really moving telehealth forward. Five years ago, Kentucky was lagging far behind much of the nation in telehealth, and now we are very close to the forefront. And I'm very excited about what our state has done and been able to share with other states in that arena. Um, I'm also on the AHLA Behavioral Health Task Force, and I'm education chair, and I'm on a state bar association committee dealing with youth and behavioral health services provision, um, particularly via telehealth, but uh, also in schools. Thank you so much, Anna. And before I continue, we will be discussing telehealth later on, so we're excited to to hear Anna's insight on that. And she did give me permission to call her a telehealth nerd for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> so um, with that being said, I did want to take um, thank the three of you for taking the time to join me for this podcast. Um, today we'll be asking these three individuals several questions related to their presentation provided at the annual meeting. And just to level set, the title of their presentation was Behavioral Health Strategies for Rural Hospitals, Engaging Investor and Community Partners to Increase Access to Care and Meet the COVID-19 Challenges. So I'd like to start off with a question that I think will build a foundation for the conversation to follow in this podcast, which is why this particular topic was chosen for the AHLA annual meeting. So Gina, why was this topic so important for you to present on? So likely all that are tuning in to this podcast are aware of the opioid crisis national emergency. And now added to that, we have the latest information from surveys of the American public as we are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And that that is really greatly increasing individual levels of stress and anxiety. And so while the three of us chose to highlight the importance of delivery of behavioral health care in rural areas, as a topic due to shared and collective client experiences. Since the time we submitted the topic, the pandemic has really exacerbated the need to look at delivery models as well. And we think, um, you know, talking in our session about potential strategic partnerships and ways to collaborate and coordinate can offer a lot of support um, and ideas to our rural healthcare clients. And some of those areas um, of potential benefit are um, you know, a few that I'll cover here. One area of potential benefit really is improving their financial viability and overall picture. Public payers have historically um, accounted for a large share of overall payer mix in rural areas and also have historically relatively low reimbursement. Um, and that combined with a limited private insurance base often puts a financial strain on rural providers um, to begin with. So pursuing collaboration or coordination can help strengthen their financial position by allowing them to participate in different types of innovative care models, which I'll talk a little bit more about later, like value-based care payment models. Um, a second key area of benefit that we think we you know, really wanted to highlight in the course of our talk um, is that potential impact that collaboration can have to the health workforce and shortages of mental health care providers in rural areas. Um, over half of primary care medical health professional shortage areas, or HIPSAs, are located in rural areas. And so looking at ways to collaborate can help our clients think of um, better and more efficient ways to deliver um, services 
as well as assist them with um, ways to strengthen their position to recruit and retain professionals in this area. Um, also, a potential area of benefit is just increasing healthcare access points generally through collaboration. And finally, we see a potential benefit in the way collaboration um, and seeking out effective community partners can help address social determinants of health. Um, we're seeing greater attention now paid to treatment of the whole person. And so by addressing um, those determinants of health like education level, income inequality, um, housing quality and stability, um, and food availability, all of this can influence how patients access healthcare and how they manage their own health. And so we really think that looking at addressing delivery of behavioral health issues is a timely and important topic. And that's why we were excited to present at the annual meeting on it. Perfect, yeah, I agree. Everything you guys covered was, was super important and also really eye-opening. Um, so moving, moving on, Anna, one of the things um, that I know you spoke about was driving forces behind rural hospital affiliations and partnerships to better deliver behavioral health care services. And specifically, I remember you mentioned that you can't treat the behavioral health patient in a silo, and that record sharing and fact sharing is a huge benefit that rural hospitals bring to the table. Can you speak a little bit more about this, um, what this is and why it's so important? Absolutely, and like Gina emphasized, collaboration and treating the whole person is one of the primary focuses in behavioral health care. You can't treat a person with addiction or a person with a mental health issue as just that subject, that symptom, that issue. You need to look at every aspect and every health need and even social need that patient has. Many, many providers, when they're working with somebody with a behavioral health issue, express how much they wish they knew what had gone on in the patient's life before and what the rest of the patient's life is like. And you can't get that in a 30-minute or even an hour-long visit. And so um, bringing that information to the table is a key role that rural hospitals can provide. In a county or a small town, the hospital may be the only provider who literally sees you from birth to death. The hospital also uh, has employs the provider who maybe staffs the ED and sees the patient in crisis, or the counselor who sat with the patient through hospice when his parent or, or significant other was in care, or the pediatrician who treated the patient when she was younger. And so if you can bring all that information together with patient consent, the providers can work together to weave that um, healthcare home type uh, treatment. They can have the solid basis for treating the whole person and not just looking at the behavioral health issue as something that we don't know why it happened or how it happened, but we'll just treat that specific symptom. Also in the small town or a rural hospital is your education provider. That's frequently where the doctors and other medical professionals in the region go to get care, go to get CMEs, go to sit and talk and learn about um, improvements in practice areas. So the hospital is a hub of information sharing and can bring best practices to the table that otherwise might not uh, be available to providers in that community. And the hospital has an awful lot of data as well. And so if we can get the hospitals to de-identify that data and share it with providers, it would really help everyone in that local community to know X number of people here are struggling with these particular issues. 
not only can the providers already in that region use that data to better treat their patients, but sometimes you're lucky enough that you can entice a provider from a different area to come in to treat. If you know that there's a huge occurrence of autism in this community and caregivers don't know how to deal with these individuals as they're reaching adulthood, you can bring in a specialist from someone else, somewhere else and they can help the providers um, help inform the care for the patients in that community. Perfect. That's that's really great context. Thank you, Anna. Since you since you brought it up, Anna, I'd also like to dive a little bit deeper and focus on the specific delivery of behavioral health services in rural settings. Gina, during the presentation, you indicated that when your clients, and specifically those clients that are located in more rural areas, have evaluated their total cost of care for patients with a comorbidity that involves a behavioral health condition, they found that those costs hugely increase. I think I even heard you say that sometimes the costs increase as much as three times those without the behavioral health condition. Can you talk a little bit about what, why that might be the case? Sure. So there are a lot of factors that potentially drive up the cost of care for patients with uh, mental health or substance abuse disorder need that is not being efficiently and effectively cared for and supported when they also present for another medical condition. And I think our, our clients have started to analyze that patient population more closely to look at how their access um, you know, of the system is often sometimes um, at the highest cost, the most expensive care site by, for example, frequent visits to the ED um, versus if they run the analysis of looking at how they can coordinate care better um, in lower cost settings, or like, for example, through an effective partnership with a community mental health provider, over time that really can change the cost trajectory for them and caring for the patient population and avoid those more expensive ED visits. Also, they've found that just slowness in their ability to identify the comorbidity um, can increase general inefficiencies and increase costs. Um, for example, continuing to address obesity with a patient that also has the comorbidity of depression um, can kind of lead to inefficiencies and increased costs as well. And so all of that feeds into those total cost of care statistics when they're looking at kind of overlapping patient populations and trying to isolate opportunities um, for cost management, not only to control the cost for their system, but also improve support of the patient and the overall patient experience and also look at whether or not they can begin to improve quality of care as well. So that's, those are just some of the factors I think that they look at um, when trying to isolate like the, their overall spend for not effectively addressing patients with comorbidities that include behavioral health conditions. Got it. And staying on the same topic, Gina, you had said that one option for rural healthcare providers to increase the support network was to attract potentially a commercial payer to be able to provide them with a bundled way of covering costs for this particular patient population. Can, can you explain on this topic? Sure, so I, I mentioned earlier that uh, there's often a higher public payer population for mental health care, and there's historically been more limited private insurance um, coverage or a base of coverage. Even private payer contracts have specifically had carve-outs um, in the past where um, you know, they're, they're not going to offer under the, the main contract care for behavioral health services. 
Um, what's interesting now, and I think what's um, hopeful, is seeing how that has only contributed to more problems with access to care and a more fragmented care system, especially in rural areas. And so, um, that, and that's really been straining uh, providers financially in the process and also contributing to um, the healthcare provider shortage. So what we're seeing that we're excited about is a recognition by payers um, that uh, treatment of the whole person is very important, that if um, they're incentivizing providers appropriately with the reimbursement model, um, that they can kind of drive down the overall cost of care. And we look at it, um, you know, from a representing most often, at least in my practice, the healthcare provider side, ways to um, encourage providers to consider those partnerships and collaborations that can help them adopt a new model that shows um, their ability to effectively manage care for a population and perhaps um, then be able to effectively negotiate with a pair that has determined to offer this, these types of incentives and models. Um, for example, in North Carolina, Blue Cross Blue Shield has just come out um, with a, a specific initiative related to um, rewarding providers for effective treatment of behavioral health care. And so I think that um, we're going to see more of that over time. And, and then it becomes kind of a do you develop it as you go along and seek providers to develop something great and take that to a payer or you look at what a pair is offering as, as an initiative and see if what you're already doing can plug into that model. Um, these are conversations that, um, that we think can happen over time, but we want to kind of add that to the discussion around um, strategic planning for, for our clients to think about um, once you've shown that you're effectively managing this pa patient population, think about um, you know, additional ways to capitalize on that once you've built that infrastructure. That makes sense. And either way, they're moving in a in a positive direction, whether bringing that to the, the table themselves or falling in, in line with the commercial payer. I think that reducing the cost overall is, is the end goal. And it sounds like both of those ways can, can accomplish that. I'd like to switch gears now and, and speak about some of the models that are being implemented to address care in rural areas. William, you specifically mentioned that some of your clients have come up with creative and innovative affiliations and partnerships to try to address the needs of, of their specific market. I heard a lot of great ideas from you in your presentation, but I was most interested about the, the rural health providers reaching out to their schools and fire departments to become the provider of choice for behavioral health for their communities. Can you explain on this approach and what maybe made it so successful? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, when we talk to our clients, really the two big problems we see when they're trying to establish behavioral health service lines or, or service those needs in their communities is can they get provider coverage and can they get enough volume to make a service line you know financially viable and honestly you know if you've got enough volume there in the market it usually makes attracting providers easier right it makes a, the proposition um to, to recruit a provider more straightforward if you have an established patient base so they can kind of step into and, and, and not have to build from the ground up. So um, when we've seen our clients, and I thought Anna did a great job in our presentation talking about this, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to be creative and you've got to work with your community stakeholders. So for example, when, when you mentioned the schools and the fire departments and police departments, I mean, those entities direct a lot of behavioral health patients, you know, whether you're in school and they have behavioral issues or autism, et cetera, or fire departments or police uh, departments getting called to scenes uh, where there might be a, an acute issue um, 
a suicide or, or something along those lines that might require an inpatient um, stay, you know, if the, if the rural hospital goes ahead and tries to establish relationships with those types of entities, they can keep those patients in the community in many cases instead of, hey, you know, this child has special needs, we'll send them to the, the more urban location to get care from, from the bigger facility or the academic medical center. If you go into the school and help them establish procedures and protocols and establish relationships with their, you know, administration, et cetera, um, you know, you, may, you, you have a good chance to keep that volume in the community. Um, you know, if, if a police officer picks up a, um, a person at a scene, you know, instead of them driving somewhere else, you know, they'll, they'll take the patient to you versus having all of your volume just driven through the ER, for example. So at the end of the day, you know, it's about being creative, just um, reaching out to stakeholders, making sure everybody's on the same page and educating them on, you know, what you can bring to the table. And hopefully that enables you to kind of build that patient base that can also help you, you know, attract providers. Um, you know, I also mentioned trying to coordinate a little bit with other community health systems. I, I will say I'm not a lawyer. Um, to do that, you know, you want to make sure you're not going up against any competitive factors. And I don't know, Gina, if you wanted to talk about some legal structures, if you will, you've seen some some folks use to help uh, coordinate on the sure. clinical side with other clinical providers. Sure. I know um, in mentioning that we would say if you're, because if you're in a rural area, there, there are competitive concerns, especially if you're in a two hospital town. And so as you're evaluating your options to collaborate, really to just, um, you know, consult an attorney and also potentially utilize a third party consultant to the extent that you're working through issues around competition and analyzing the risks. Um, but there are really a variety of options from, you know, a single hospital driven community collaboration to formation of a rural health network with that fellow hospital, um, you know, to where you recognize together that your combined efforts to address behavioral health are going to be stronger than on your own um, to other potential affiliations and partnership opportunities. That's helpful. Thank you, William, and thank you, Gina. Um, William, another strategy you mentioned was to reach out to more urban providers, given their natural tendency to, to want to drive volume at their facilities. Because of this, a lot of these providers are willing to provide outreach for rural health providers, such as outpatient behavioral health care. So can you give one or two examples of this approach and how to best operationalize it? This, this approach really works in urban communities where, there, where there's numerous providers of uh, behavioral health um, healthcare. You know, maybe there's a couple hospitals with psychiatric units and there's even maybe some freestanding facilities in the market. So as with any healthcare organization, it's, it's in many aspects of volume driven game, right? So, um, and plus when you look at behavioral health in general, a lot of those issues are happening in your rural communities. And you see out migration from those rural communities into to more urban markets. So we've seen rural clients able to go to providers in more urban, urban settings and kind of formalize relationships to try to, you know, align their interests. So whether that be, you know, they come into town a couple days a week and do kind of a timeshare to provide outpatient care. So if there is an inpatient stay required, you know, they've already got that relationship so they can drive that that admission to their associated inpatient facility. Um, 
is kind of one thing. We've seen facilities even provide coverage on um, an inpatient unit, for example, in rural communities. It just depends on what their capacity is, what their ability is. Um, you know, unfortunately, we do see many institutions today in urban settings that are already full, so they don't they're not necessarily as interested in, in driving additional volume. Um, but you know, everything from a timeshare to you know some sort of PSA arrangement to provide coverage or telehealth, um, we've definitely seen seen folks um, do that for sure. So. Perfect. And the third strategy that was mentioned in the presentation was telepsychiatry. And Anna, again, your words, not mine, but you said you were a huge telehealth nerd. So can you talk briefly about two or three reasons why this might work and conversely when it may not work? Absolutely. Um, I want to share my husband's favorite story. He's not in healthcare, but he says he loves to listen to me talk about telehealth. He said, I don't understand a word you're saying, but you sound so happy. It's like watching the <laughs> creek run. <laughs> so I guess there's a compliment there. Um, there are three big barriers in behavioral health care that we all face, stigma, cost, and access. And telehealth is a really good way to solve or remove those barriers. As a society, we're only a few years out from the era where persons with behavioral health issues were locked away or not talked about. Still in many communities, addiction in particular is a, is a stigma. People think there's something wrong with you if you are a person with addiction. And so uh, the telehealth format allows a patient, particularly in a rural community, to access care without being seen. Nobody sees you going into the psychiatrist's office. Um, and for teens in particular, this is a, a, a format they're used to. Lots of our young people are very savvy on their phones and they may even be more comfortable discussing their mental health or behavioral health issues with a counselor or psychiatrist via the phone than they would be if they were sitting in your office. So um, stigma is a big factor it resolves. In another uh, arena, the access issue was huge. And so if you are in a rural area, you may be 20 minutes as the crow flies from your provider, but if you have to drive rural roads, you may be two hours away. And it is much easier for somebody to um, pick up a phone or dial in on a laptop and reach the provider than it is to hire a sitter, buy some gas, take time off work, and drive, um, not to mention the wait times in providers' offices. So with telehealth, we suddenly enabled people who couldn't afford the time or um, the money to go see a provider, uh, an easy way of doing that. In Kentucky, our uh, community mental health centers were seeing about 2% of their patients um, in some areas. Uh, and now with telehealth being more available to them or suddenly available to them for the first time, their population and their ability to access those first-time folks in need in particular has gone up, um, not to 100%, but much, much closer. And so we see the immediate effect of the telehealth being available to everyone in, in our state. And I think we're seeing that nationwide. And the last factor, cost, is a big driver. For a smaller provider, every missed appointment is a lot of money that you're losing that would have gone towards overhead to employing your staff. And cost is also a big factor for um, federal payers in particular. Medicaid really can't pay for lost visits, but providers who suffer 
a lot of that, can't continue to work for Medicaid patients. And many rural communities have a high percentage of those patients. And lastly, we're learning from the, some of the private payers who, as Gina pointed out, are not always willing to pay for care and have figured out the best and most economical way to do it. And many of these private payers were already using telehealth or telephone visits for patients. And so it's a chance for the rest of the world, Medicare and Medicaid in particular, to see that huge cost savings and uh, adopt best practices. We did see, and this was a huge surprise to me in Kentucky when we suddenly went to telehealth, boom, this year with COVID, everyone could provide any service from art therapy to counseling via telehealth. Um, we saw two big issues and one was provider fatigue. Uh, providers reported it's much more exhausting to sit and look at that screen and do appointment after appointment after appointment because they didn't have the downtime of an in-person in your office visit where you socialize. You have a little small talk. You sit the person down. You walk around. Um, and so providers expressed fatigue uh, with a solid telehealth-only schedule. And so as a state, we're, we're working on that to make sure providers schedule appropriately. And we did see in Kentucky and in other states some concerns about licensure types and not every licensure had used telehealth prior to COVID. And when it was open season, everyone had to use it. We had providers whose um, governing bodies hadn't ever trained them how. And so there was a lot of uh, what we called etiquette issues with folks trying to figure out how to use this effectively and patients trying to figure out how even to log on to their computer. So uh, there were some early glitches, but we, I think we've resolved it and uh, Kentucky's leading the way. Thank you, Anna. I thought your perspective on the provider fatigue was, was, was insightful. I had not heard that before, but it does make perfect sense that that would be something they're experiencing as a result of this increased usage of, uh, of telehealth. So I appreciate your thoughts on that. Um, Gina, you also discussed some common legal issues related to evaluating different models for addressing behavioral health care. Specifically, you've mentioned that it is likely you can find an applicable exception or safe harbor to protect the relationship you're going to set up to address the behavioral health needs. Can you give an example of this? Sure. Um, and staying with our discussion of telebehavioral health, I think we can show where that kind of an opportunity and arrangement could also raise the potential for the need to comply with the federal anti-kickback statute. Uh, as many on the call likely already know, the federal anti-kickback statute prohibits the exchange of anything of value in an effort to induce referral of business in federal health care programs. So in the telebehavioral health example, for example, if a large hospital system were to purchase or lease telemedicine equipment at a discounted rate to a rural practice um, to help build that ability to link rural patients with um, providers with the relevant expertise, the hospital or health system could be accused of providing that equipment at less than fair market value in order to secure referrals into a larger health system. Um, but when that kind of an arrangement is presented to you as an attorney, the key is to really understand all the facts and circumstances around that, understand um, if there's a shortage of care and the needs um, that are prompting the, the situation that's and the potential arrangement that's being brought, um, and then analyze the applicable guidance that's available to you via 
OIG uh, guidance and advisory opinions and others in order to analyze and calculate that overall level of risk um, that's presented by the arrangement. In the lease of equipment example, you would be looking to try to fit within the equipment rental safe harbor to the federal anti-kickback statute. And provided that you were able to show that the rental charge was consistent with fair market value and not determined in a manner taking into account volume or value of referrals, you likely could tick through the whole of the elements in that safe harbor um, to, to deem the potential structure low risk and, and move forward. Um, however, oftentimes in our rural health settings, um, it might not be a fair market value um, presentation. There might be a, a lower discounted rate made available. Um, there, there might be a variety of reasons prompting that. And so I, I would say, yes, always seek to fit um, as best you can squarely within a safe harbor. And especially if you're talking about Stark law compliance, um, squarely within an exception to the Stark law. But keep in mind um, that based on the facts and circumstances um, and overall analysis of um, potential safeguards incorporated in the arrangement, like uh, preventing inappropriate patient steering or avoiding increased costs to the federal health care programs or improving access to care, that these are all legitimate benefits that the federal government wants to encourage. So I think I would say, yes, in many situations, you're able to fit within a safe harbor or exception, and um, hopefully you will. But even if you don't, um, you know, consider throughout your analysis all those potential safeguards that can be incorporated into a strategic partnership um, to kind of alleviate concerns that are, you know, our enforcement agencies find are, are very valuable to encourage in, in partnerships and can kind of mitigate the potential risk of noncompliance with fraud and abuse uh, regulations and laws. Thank you, Tina. And staying on the same theme of, of legal issues, Anna, back to you. Telehealth is an amazing advantage to today's healthcare, as we've demonstrated on this call. What are some of the most prominent areas you see providers not paying close enough attention to from a regulatory perspective? Well, these days, most of us are very, very casual and comfortable on our phone or our devices. And this can bleed over into HIPAA and privacy concerns. That's always an issue in telehealth, and typically we see recommendations that only HIPAA-compliant software be used for patient care. But during COVID, those restrictions were removed. And so I think we're going to see a big concern as those restrictions come back in place that providers and patients who've been used to just FaceTiming one another um, will struggle with remembering to be HIPAA-compliant, and particularly in, in psychiatry we need to remember how sensitive these topics are and providers need to think about not only where am I as I'm providing this care, but where's my patient? Is my patient in McDonald's? Can other people hear me? Will this have a negative impact on long-term care or prognosis? So um, HIPAA and privacy is huge with telehealth. Another problem that is occurring already is that state law on telehealth differs. And so in Kentucky, you can do one thing. In Tennessee, it's not necessarily as broad. And uh, if you go up to West Virginia, it's, it's you know, more restrictive. And so providers need to make uh, a point to look at where they are treating this patient. It's very easy in telepsych to cross state lines. You know, it, it, that patient is not in your office in the state you live in. They may be two or three states away if you're licensed to provide services there. 
so you need to pay attention to the differences between law and regulation from state to state. Um, a lot of my clients are finding that documentation is more of a challenge. They get so focused on that screen and making sure they do this right that they forget you still have to take notes. You still have to document the visit and build that patient care record. And so a lot of the training I do, I focus on don't forget to document. And uh, lastly, everyone's favorite billing and coding and modifiers and use of uh, documentation as to the place of service of care. You have to make sure as you're billing and coding for these services that you're doing it in a way that will let you get paid. And as importantly, that you're not miscoding. We saw some providers early on say, well, it's a little difficult to get paid when I put that O2 modifier on there. They asked me a lot of questions, so it's the same care. I'll just leave off the modifier. And so a huge caution is please bill and code correctly and use the modifiers that the uh, payer is asking you to use, or you won't get paid and you might get in trouble. That seems like straightforward advice. So I, I think everyone should take that. Um, I'd like to spend the last few minutes of today's podcast to talk about business and valuation considerations, obviously a favorite topic of mine. Uh, William, can you give two or three trends you're seeing commonly with regards to inpatient psychiatry services? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, and this has been over the last couple of years, you know, we've really seen a trend where, um, not-for-profit health systems or even for-profit health systems in some cases have joint ventured their behavioral health psychiatry service lines. You know, historically it was a unit of their hospital um, and they're going to enter into a joint venture play uh, into a joint venture arrangement with a, usually a for-profit operator to build kind of a freestanding psychiatry hospital. So I think that was, especially before COVID, the, the trend we were seeing. Um, I think there's a couple factors driving that trend. Um, number one was access. Um, a lot of these not-for-profit hospitals, psychiatric units were full and they were seeing more demand than what they had beds for. So they were, you know, putting psychiatry patients in your normal med surge beds. You could, you would even see providers boarding patients in the ER, um, et cetera. So they needed to increase capacity. Um, a joint venture, you know, with a for-profit operator enables them to provide the capital to do that. And, you know, obviously the hospitals have lots of demands on their capital. Um, you know, they, they get a lot of volume from the ER. They wanted to, to kind of redirect out of their system. So, you know, with COVID, um, I think just like everything, everybody kind of pressed pause on that for the last few months. But we have seen that continue, and I've, I've fielded a few phone calls even in the last couple of weeks around interest in that, in that model. You know, usually the model is, is they build much bigger facilities, you know, usually a unit in a, psychi uh, a psychiatric unit, you know, not-for-profit hospitals, 20, 30 beds, something like that. You know, most of the freestanding facilities we see, the Acadias or the UHSs, and I believe even Kindred now is, is pursuing this model, are usually, you know, 80-plus beds. Um, in those arrangements, we, we can see that the hospitals contribute things like their brands. Obviously, they have a CON or their, their existing service line. So that, in terms of inpatient psychiatry, is definitely the trend we're seeing. Um, you know, from a valuation perspective, you know, COVID, I think, definitely slowed um, the behavioral health volumes down. 
number one, I do think that was less severe than we've seen in other verticals, um, like outpatient surgery or um, imaging or, or one of those type of, you know, healthcare modalities, if you will. I do, they did see an impact because a lot of that volume is driven out of the ER and with just the collapse of ER visits, I think um, that impact was still felt. It's just not as severe. However, based on my conversations with clients, I, I get the sense that a lot of that volume softness we've seen, things are beginning to come back to normal. And, you know, with a longer term view, there might even be more behavioral issues down the line with the stress of the pandemic, you know, um, people, I've seen studies where people are abusing substances more now. Um, they're stressed, you know, maybe people lost their job and had marital issues during quarantine and, um, you know, cause, that might cause depression or some other related issues. So I think long-term, the fundamentals are pretty, still pretty strong. Um, from evaluation perspective, I, I would treat the COVID volume impact as almost a one-time item. Um, and I will say, you know, the other thing about COVID from evaluation perspective, we hear about is, oh, what about long-term unemployment? You know, what if we have elevated unemployment levels for a long time, or there's significant changes to payer mix, et cetera? I think a mitigating factor for that on the behavioral health side of business is that it's heavy government pay, right? So they're a little bit more shielded from payer mix issues because they've already got a, a fairly government-heavy mix to begin with. Um, so I think that's that's the main trend we're seeing um, is just that shift from smaller units within a hospital to more specialized freestanding, you know, hospital providers. Perfect. This is really great information. Thank you, William. Unfortunately, I think this wraps up our time today. All of the information provided from Gina, Anna, and William was incredibly helpful. I'm sure we could talk for days on end about these issues. So thank you to the three of you for your thoughtful feedback as it relates to this topic. If you have any additional questions for Gina, William, or Anna, their contact information is available in the details within the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for Thank having me. Thank you.